publishing in 2015, in November 2015. So, uh, and it's it's gone on from there. Nice. And what gave you that push to start doing uh, publishing books on the subject of well, your Well, I've been a magazine editor for several publications in the past. And um, one of the gentlemen who, with whom had written a, a few articles for us uh, from Poland, his name is Peter. Peter. Peter Cieli Bias. And Peter sent me a manuscript, not for publication. Uh, he was wanting to practice his written English. His, his, his speaking English is very good. So, it, so I read it and I thought, well, that's good. And I gave him some feedback, of course. And then a friend of mine called um, John Hansen uh, runs his own publishing concern called Haunted Skies. And um, he kind of twisted my arm somewhat. I was still working full time at that point. So my intention was to wait and I'd still got a few years left for retirement. So I thought, no. And, and so John kind of nudged me in the in that direction. So um, I, I jumped in with both feet, made mistakes of like you normally do when you, you try something new, but I learned from them. So I published UFOs over Poland, which was well-received, uh, and then progressed from there. The following year, I got the chance to take early retirement, so it, it seemed like perfect timing. So I retired from the day job and, and do this full-time. You know, I still research and investigate UFO sightings that come my way, where I write and I publish um, uh, most of most of my time is taken up with that. Nice, but you're still involved in UFOs all the time because you're reading other people's stuff. Absolutely, you can't escape it. No, you're, you're just embedded in it at this point. Uh, we talk about the investigative aspect. Um, and now, you are from England. We did talk to a few people on the subject, but I'm interested in what got Philip Mantle interested in UFOs. Like, Did you have a sighting when you were a kid that, that triggered all of this? No, no, I'm... Yes, and I mean, uh, I go way back as far as I can remember. I was always interested in the paranormal. Um, I also was interested in, you know, astronomy, the space program, a little bit of science fiction, not a lot, um, but certainly the paranormal worlds, um, always in my life. Uh, and books. My mum was a great reader of novels. She liked novels, not, not non-fiction. So I was always surrounded by books anyway. And, for example, when I went to high school, when you'd come back off the, after your summer holidays, the teacher would sometimes say, what, what did you do during your summer holidays? So someone would say, I went, I went, you know, we went to Spain. And another girl might say, I went to ride my pony. Well, what about you, Philip? Oh, I went to the spiritualist church <laughs> with, my, with my best friend's grandma because um, she lived literally the opposite side of the road from us. And that's exactly what I used to do. You see the look on my, you know, the other pupils in the class. Um, wasn't a great way of attracting the, the, the girls either. <laughs> you know, back in school, the interest, you know, even for me, when I was uh, gotten into UFOs, um, they didn't have much books on it. So you had to go to, like, the main library to pick up any books on the subject. So I took out whatever I could, you know, uh, as a kid. But there, 
wasn't as many books as there are now on the subject, even in the 80s, for some reason. No, no, very few, very few. And I managed to get a couple, and um, that fed my interest. After I left high school when I was 16, and, um, you know, carried on, and I got a few magazines and that kind of thing. Then in 19... Late 1978, over the winter into 1979, I went to work in West Germany, as it was then, and couldn't speak the language. So I asked my mum to send me some books. Somehow, Jason, she managed to find a box full of paperback UFO books, and she sent me those. So no point watching the TV on an evening in Germany because I had no idea what they were talking about. So I would read. So by the time I returned home in early... 1979 I was I'd, I'd you know got more information and, and it, had, it had fueled my imagination with this subject just by chance I lived outside of just the city of Leeds and Leeds publishes even now an evening newspaper called the Yorkshire Evening Post and my aunt who lived around the corner she brought it around for us and in it was a small ad it was for the formation of the Yorkshire UFO Society. That's the county I live in. Okay. And it was coming up that Sunday. So Sunday comes, I get on the bus. I didn't drive in those days. I got on the bus into Leeds, found this place. On, on Sundays in those days, um, Jason, in the UK, everything was shut. I mean, it was like a ghost town. But I found this location in goes, and there was about, I don't know, 30 people there. And the Yorkshire UFO Society had been set up by two brothers. And that was Mark and Graham Birdsell. And they put on a presentation. They'd already been involved for a number of years. And I just felt I'd found my, my niche, my place. I felt at home. And they had a stall selling books. So I could, you know, I could devour the more books as well. And that's how it all began. Nice. And then what led you to want to start investigating UFOs? Was that from reading that as well and saying, hey, I want to take part of this? Yeah, I mean, I was never satisfied, if you like, Jason, to have other people tell me what was what. I wanted to find out for myself. Mm -hmm. For example, I'm, I'm one of the guys that later on, I went, I'll give you an example. I went to work in, an en in a factory. And I was being trained on this huge, great plant. I won't bore you with the details of it. And I remember the, 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 the guy who was training me, he said, when this comes through here, you lift this roller up for 17 seconds, and then you put it down again. And I said, okay. And I said, just one question. He says, what? I said, why 17 seconds? And he says, you know, Philip, I've been training people to use this equipment for 10 years, and nobody has ever asked me that question before. You know, they've all just said, fair enough. So he explained to me why it had to be 17 seconds, and it made perfect sense, but I just wanted to know. So it was the same with my interest in the paranormal and the UFO phenomena. I wanted to know. Reading a book was great, you know, but the, it wasn't quite enough. And unfortunately, uh, Jason, Yorkshire used to be one big county. It's now split up into north, south, east and west. And North Yorkshire is still the largest county in the UK. We have a national park there called the Yorkshire Dales. Beautiful place. Uh, and for some reason, just outside of the market town of Skipton, um, 
in a, a place called Carlton Moor. There's a little village called Carlton, and you literally drive through it, you wave at the pub, and there's a few houses, and you go up onto the moors, and there's nothing there. It's there's no no livestock. It's used for game game birds, you know, grouse and pheasant and that kind of thing. This area had a lot of UFO sightings in the 1980s, uh, and somehow they made their way to us uh, at our HQ, which was my friend's flat in in Leeds, and um, so. I, I, the timing was right when I joined, just by coincidence. So we would go out into these moors, we would interview the people, we would stage sky watches, we'd speak to locals, we'd put posters up in pubs and libraries and that kind of thing. And it was amazing how people, you know, managed to find us. Um, so I, I just seemed to join at the right time. It, that's just the way it was. Nice. And what was your first case? What was the one that, like, really you got, uh, you know, excited about? What was the big case? The well, it, it wasn't. It wasn't out on those moors. I, I, when I live now, I live in a town called Pontefract, and all this area used to be coal mining. And uh, my father, for example, worked down the coal mines all his life, and that's what I was expected to do. And nothing wrong with that, you know. It was honest living, hard work. Um, so just literally a couple of miles from here is another town that was dominated by the coal mines. It's called Normanton. And in 1980, we had a phone call from a, a lady in Normanton. And she said, you'll never believe me. You'll never believe me. That were the first words. Yeah. I said, well, there's a chance. Oh, you, you'll, you'll never believe me. So she went on to explain she'd seen this thing on the ground. So my colleague, Mark Birdsell, and I went to interview her. She hadn't seen it alone. Um, the basic scenario is um, she lived in a cul-de-sac, just one row of houses, and they were elevated houses, so you had to walk up several steps to get in the front door. And she had five children who were playing a ball game in the street. They just had lunch, and she was washing the dishes, looking out over the street. And one of the children come running in, and he said, Mum, there's an aeroplane landed in the field. So at the end of the cul-de-sac was, was some trees and a little stream and a field with some electricity pylons in it. So as she comes out on the front step, bearing in mind she's, she's elevated, she said, I could see this thing that looked like a Mexican hat, but was a silver colour. So she got the children, off they went, and they lost sight of it at one point because you go down a little dip come up the other side, and this field is bordered by a fence. This thing is still there, and there's now three tall humanoids, all in white, with a visor, uh, not gloves, but mittens, they were, and they were waving something over the, over the ground. The children weren't phased by this at all. They wanted to climb the fence, and, and she's holding them back. At this point, these three humanoids walk to the rear of this thing, it rose up into a clear blue sky, stopped, and then shot off at an angle. And she was obviously stunned by it. What puzzled... She's called Mrs. Westerman, by the way. That was her name, Westerman. Westerman. What puzzled them even more, Jason, was the fact that she was sure it was going to be on the local news. Nothing. I mean, there's a, where, where it happened, there's a, there's a major uh, motorway runs right past there. None of her neighbours saw it. 
wasn't in the local newspapers. That that puzzled her as much as as, as the sighting itself. Right. So Mark yeah. and I interviewed all the children. We even interviewed one of the children's friends who'd gone home for his lunch and had come back and missed it all. You know, and he, he was miffed that he'd missed it. And I knew these people that the, the, her, her husband wasn't there. He was at work. He was a coal miner. These people were the kind of people I grew up with. The kids were playing a, a, a made-up ball game. And it's the same ball game I used to play when we were that age, hmm. you know. And um, so they were either lying or telling the truth. There was no in between. This wasn't a helicopter or anything like that, you know. And I could find no reason for them to lie. And uh, she wouldn't let us take a photograph of her. She didn't want any publicity. Uh, and for years, I didn't even use her real name. So this was 1980. This is a little curious thing, Jason. Last year, I did a podcast for somebody. I, I can't remember who it was. I got an email from a lady in New Zealand. And this lady said, oh, I used to live in Normanton. You didn't say um, the lady's surname. So I emailed her back. I said, oh, sorry, it was a, you know, it was a lady by the name of Mrs. Westerman. She said, you've got to be joking. My best friend was called Westerman, and she still lives in Normanton. So she emailed her best friend, and her best friend, she's married now, so she changed the name. And she was one of those children that I interviewed all those years back in 1980. That's and crazy. Yeah, we were, we were due to meet, but then COVID came in, so we exchanged information on email. She sent me like a bullet point of the things she could remember. And and she confirmed it all over again. It's just weird, though, the uh, the brazen, you know, it's almost just landing right in a populated area. Just because this is not unusually or, or unheard of. It's not unusual. Um, even in New York, that happened in front of uh, it's a park that's in front of a bunch of apartment buildings. And it landed yeah. there, too. And they did the exact same thing, came out, tested the ground. Some about the crown that they're really interested in 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 residential areas. Um, maybe we should start looking into that. Like, what is it about residential areas that they're so concerned about the crown for? But what that sighting did, of course, Jason, it confirmed to me that whatever UFOs were, it certainly was worthy of my time and effort to look into it. Yeah, it wasn't wasting my time, and um, because these were like people I'd, I'd known and still know, you know, all my life. You know, my father worked down the coal mine. The children played the same ball. It doesn't mean they weren't lying, but I couldn't find any reason why they were lying. Um, in the local newspaper, I've run that story a couple of times to see if there was anyone else stepped forward, but not not a, not a soul, nobody. I mean, it's a beautiful sunny day. You know, the children were out playing, so there will have been lots of other people about. And like I say, there's a motorway runs right next to it but we never found anyone else. And it puzzled the living daylights out of Mrs. Westerman, yeah. why that yeah. was so. It's almost you had to be in the right place at the right time. Otherwise, you didn't see this apparition or whatever you want to call it. Um, but uh, that's what really confirmed it for me. And I, I, 
and I, I never looked back since then. So that gets your, uh, you know, your your motivation up and running. So you're looking forward to, you know, okay, let's investigate this more. What's the next step for you? Like, what? How does this lead into like a full time investigation? Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, well, the Yorkshire UFO Society started to grow. So we went from, you know, 30 members to 40 to 50. We started to produce our own handmade magazine. Um, magazine is, is a, it, it really wasn't. It was a newsletter to begin with on a hand machine that we had to crank a Gustetner. Oh, wow. We then, yeah, old yeah, school, then, old school. Yeah, 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 we then bought a small uh, Lido printing machine that we didn't know how to work. And when it arrived, we had to get it to the seventh floor of my friend's apartment, or flat as we call them, and we were praying that the lifts were working because there's no way this is going up the stairs. And we didn't know how to work that, but we managed. Uh, so we then started to print a magazine, and we used to hand collate it. Um, and it just went from there. I, I was asked to join a, a national organisation called the British UFO Research Association, which I did. Um, I was the press secretary or press officer. I was a conference organiser. And eventually I was their director of investigations. We had about a 1,000 members, roughly about 100 investigators of one form or another around the UK, a, a small group of consultants who could help us with... with um, things of a scientific nature. And uh, I was also the MUFON uh, representative for England when wow. uh, when Walter Andrus was in, in the head man. And I'd started lecturing and writing and uh, and it just went, you know, from there, just, just one step after another. I never planned anything, Jason. It just seemed to, to happen. Yeah. I, when I plan things, they tend not to go right. right. So I stop planning things. I just just go with the flow. Is that that works better? The universe will direct you on where you need to go. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I've um, uh, recently. I know you've been posting about Calvin Parker, um, basically recovering. Uh, how is he doing as of late? He's doing good. He's doing I just good. got a message from him this morning. He's, he's doing good. Thank good, you. Good, good. His story for me falls within the same uh, category as uh, the Allagash incident with uh, the two twin brothers and their friends uh, on the canoe trip. And, you know, you hear about his story. And for me, like, it's it's more the uh, the the police officer who tried to trick them and, and put his uh, tape recorder when he left the office to try to see if they were fibbing or going to try to coordinate a lie. And just to hear the conversation between Calvin and oh, I forgot the older gentleman's name. Cal Dixon. Just to hear the conversation between those two in that room uh, that night after this happened. I mean, I mean that. Just, yeah. What, what's, what's interesting. It's called the secret tape. Uh, for those who are not aware, Charlie and Calvin's event took place in Pascagoula, Mississippi in uh, October the 11th, 1973. They were fishing on the river when it happened. And um, what, what is interesting, they had a, a discussion about what they should do afterwards. Calvin was adamant, we're not going to tell anyone. So that was the plan. So they took off in Calvin's car and then they had, well, 
Calvin didn't, but Charlie had a change of heart. He said, what if this is the beginning of an invasion? What if, they, what if they land somewhere else and do this to somebody else? So he made Calvin pull over. And Calvin agreed reluctantly, but he said, if you tell anyone, I'm going to say I passed out and I can't remember anything. I saw the creatures and that's it. So they first phoned Keesler Air Force Base because Charlie had served in the Army in the Korean War. They said, we don't investigate UFOs anymore ring the local authorities. So they, they phoned the police. And because of wherever they, lo- they were located at the time, it became a sheriff department um, problem. So it was the sheriff that, that escorted them back into town. Um, however, the policeman who took that phone call that night from Charles Hickson is still alive. And uh, I've spoken with him. And he says, you know, Philip, he says, I must have taken over 50 calls that night of UFO sightings. And it's not only that, he says, I had to log it all in and it would hand the login at the police station. And he said, after my shift, there were even people at the police station in person reporting it. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So he's, he's never gone on television or anything like that. He still lives in the area. And he was the son of the of the sheriff. So it was Sheriff Fred Diamond and his deputy called Glyn Ryder who interviewed Charlie and Calvin separately. And they were, were, you know, not convinced. So they put them both in a room together. And like you said, unbeknown to Charlie and Calvin, there was a tape recorder in the desk next to them. So the, the deputy left them alone thinking, give them 10 minutes, you know, came back in, took something out of the drawer. They had no idea what it was taking, but it was the tape, of course. They played it back, and they they were, you know, just as scared as they'd ever been. Calvin was, you know, on the verge of a breakdown. He wanted to pray. He wanted to get the hell out of there. And Charlie was saying, you know, I've seen some bad things during the war, but, you know, I've never seen anything like this. And that convinced the sheriff that they were telling the truth. Somehow the story got out the next day and, you know, it went around the world. And um, fascinating story. I could talk it's, all day about yeah. it, Jason, because what's, yeah. what's yeah. happened is since Calvin went public in 2018, and I published his first book, it's called Pascagoula, The Closest Encounter. He did some local press to begin with. And one was like an eight-minute mini film about Calvin. And somebody put it on YouTube. And you could leave comments. And one of the comments was, my mum and dad were on the opposite side of the river that night. And they saw it. I went, what? So I got in touch with this lady. She put me in touch with her mum and dad. They were still alive. It's Mr. and Mrs. Blair. And they were indeed on the opposite side of the river oh, wow. that night. And um, they were waiting for a boat to come in because Mr. Blair worked in the, in, the, in the fishing industry. He was not best pleased it was late. And on the opposite side, they could see this blue light. Bearing in mind, that's what Charlie and Calvin first saw, was this blue light. Mrs. Blair said it looked like it was either looking for something. Yeah, was it was lost. looking for something. Yeah. yeah. And then they're on a little jetty. And then their boat, you know, comes in. And as they're walking along this, she's got Mr. Blair's bag. 
She says, there's an almighty splash in the water next to me. Bear in mind, it's dark. And she said, I look down and there's a gray man in the water. There's a gray man in the water next to me. She ran up to the boat, threw the stuff on it and run because she got to go back down there, back to the car. Mr. Blair um, told her not to say anything to anybody and they didn't, apart from their own family. They, but once Calvin went public, they went public. Mr. Mr. Blair went on to say, well, I saw that he didn't say he didn't call it a gray man. He called it a gray humanoid. And he said, I saw it too, Philip. And Mrs. Blair said to me, I often wondered if something similar hadn't happened to us that happened to Charlie and Calvin. She said that right from day one. Sadly, in the, in the intervening two years, Mr. Blair has passed away. But Mrs. Blair is, is still there. And um, she's one of many witnesses from, in and around the area, Jason, from a couple of days beforehand to a couple of up to a two or three weeks afterwards. Things were happening. And it looks like the Charlie and, and Calvin encounter was like the epicenter right. of it all, if you like. And we've been slowly but surely coaching these people or finding them or they've stepped forward. Uh, I've worked with a colleague, two colleagues, actually, Dr. Irina Scott in Ohio and Douglas Wilson, who's part of MUFON. They've interviewed the, uh, these many new witnesses, mostly on the telephone. And... Um, Make of it what you will. I mean, they're still coming forward even now. That's, yeah, and the fact is that uh, whole experience was crazy enough, uh, or, you know, by the time they got... Because if people aren't familiar with this story, um, as they were fishing, this thing just came out of nowhere. A door opened, and these two droid-looking things came out, uh, hey. grabbed Kelvin, and um, again, I forgot his name, Charlie, right? Yeah. Yeah, these three creatures, they said they were, they didn't walk, they floated. They were humanoid, but their arms were a bit long and they either had claw-like or mitten-like uh, appendages. Their legs never moved, they just stuck together. They were grey, but wrinkly like a, an elephant skin and had carrot-like protrusions almost, one out the front, one out to each side. Two got hold of Charlie, one got hold of Calvin. This is an interesting point. Calvin said, I'm, I'm terrified. And then he said, I felt some kind of pinprick in my arm, and I instantly became huh. relaxed. They took him onto this thing. He didn't see Charlie anymore. They laid him on, on a, a transparent table, for want of a better word. And then there was another creature, and he said you could tell she was female. And um, the, the, the big ugly thing, as Calvin calls it, he stood in the corner. Something came out of the wall, the ceiling, and went around him about the size of a pack of cards. They get him again to take him back. He said, I felt another prick. And I was again, I was relaxed. The next thing he remembers. He's out, back out on the pier, and Charlie's saying, Are you all right, son? You all right? And boom, this thing, you know, yeah. was gone in a flash. Now, one of the things I did when I met Calvin, and, and we decided to write a book, I asked him, I said, do you have any photographs or documents or paperwork from that time period? And he has virtually nothing, because he lost everything in Hurricane oh, Katrina. Wow. So his house was under, like, 12 feet of water, even photographs of his daughter and, you know, family things are all gone. 
So while we're writing the book, I, I contacted all the UFO groups and any, any UFO researcher that I could think of that was around in those days. And of course, Alan Hynek had been on site at Pascagoula in 1973. And, and he set up the Centre for UFO Studies just a few months later. So I contacted the Centre for UFO Studies. They have a file. They sent it to me. It's a PDF file. It's mostly newspaper cuttings, if I'm honest. But right in the middle of this file, Jason, bear in mind what Calvin said about feeling this pinprick. Right. There's a one-page typewritten, the old typewriter, until it's the old typewriter because they've gone over the date, they right. put the wrong date in. And it's dated the 13th of October, which is two days after the event. And it describes them, Charlie and Calvin, being physically examined, and they have both had pinpricks, puncture wounds about their person. On the arms, yeah. So is that confirming the, the 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 pricks that Calvin felt in his arm? And when he said it was when he said it was female, Philip, like did it appear human, or is this just that he knew that this entity oh, was yeah. female? Well, he he, he said he, he's, what happened was we, we jumped forward in time. There's lots of drawings and cartoons and all kinds of stuff of these ugly creatures. But not, no artist impression of this other thing. Yeah. So I got a friend of mine. Uh, we're actually working on a graphic novel of the Pascagoula case. Oh, wow. Okay. He's, he's a friend of mine. He's the, he's doing the artwork for it. So he's called Jason, Jason Gleaves. So I've got Jason. I know Jason Gleaves. I've, I've got him on Facebook. Yeah. There you go. So we've got Jason to Skype with Calvin. And Calvin described this female creature to him. So he's taking notes. They then swapped emails and, you know, that kind of thing. And eventually, um, Jason came up with, uh, you know, the, the definitive picture of this female. She's dressed all in blue. She's got blonde hair. Not, not got a big chest or anything like that. And the only really thing that you notice is that Calvin said her middle finger was longer than ours she put this down down his throat huh. and so we have a picture of that that calvin has it's, it's 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 as close as you can get jason's also a model maker so he made a little diorama of calvin lying on the slab with the ugly creature in the corner and this female standing there and uh, when calvin was sent sent one of these he said it, when i looked at it it sent a shiver down my spine oh wow. no. yeah so that's the closest we've come to that. That'll be hopefully be finished sometime later this year. Um, but uh, it's on my Facebook page. I've, I've used the illustration. Uh, you know, if people want to scroll through it, they'll find it somewhere. I've seen it. I liked it. I think uh, it was a great job that uh, Jason did on it. Yeah. 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 So, you know, and it's amazing. It really is. And so that, that was the first time anyone had attempted that. But the, um, the one thing about the Pascagoula, cause I was watching the documentary that uh, Calvin had done. And what I did not know about that incident is that he had a repeating mm. occurrence several years later. So it seems like whatever they did, they came back and took him again for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, in 1993, um, he went out fishing again, but this time in a little boat. 
And he only intended to be gone for a couple of hours because he'd taken a sandwich and a bottle of water, you know. And he said, I, I remember, remember it was a nice day. And I, he said, I looked up and there was a cloud. And he says, but the cloud opened up. The next thing he remembers, it's dark. He's no idea what time. He doesn't even wear a watch today. He had no idea what time it was. So he goes back and um, his car is there. And his wife had even been out looking for him because it was late. And she'd left a message under his, wind, you know, a little note under his windscreen wiper. Where are you? And uh, he was covered in this black stuff. So he got back home and he just said, oh, you know, I had engine failure. The, the boat's motor wouldn't work. And this is oil. But he knew something peculiar. And he had like little flashes of something happening. And just by chance, he had a friend who lived nearby who was, interested in the subject calvin wasn't and he said do you know he said down in florida there's a guy speaking at a ufo conference i think you ought to see so calvin said who's that and he says it's bud hopkins he's an abduction researcher so they jumped in the car unannounced they drove from mississippi to florida and calvin says i'm not going in the ufo conference i don't want people recognizing me right so his friend went and found bud explained what was what and bud says here's the key to my hotel room i'll meet you there so you know let yourself in so they met and um they had a chat and calvin for whatever reason agreed to undergo hypnosis and bud hypnotized him there in the hotel room and he talked about the event in 1973 and 1993 and two other little incidents when he was a young boy. Oh, really? So this yeah. wasn't his first rodeo then? Well, it doesn't, doesn't, doesn't seem like it. So is he, so, uh, Philip, is it safe to say that maybe he's a recurring abductee? That the, well, I, don't, I, don't, I, I don't have any signs anything else has happened anywhere. Okay. The two things when he was a young man are, not vague, but they are, they are interesting. I'll put it that way. But the interesting thing is he sees this woman in all four episodes, the same woman. So she's in whatever the, the earlier two things may or may not be. This woman was involved in it as well. Hmm. So I managed to get the tape that Bud had made of that uh, regression. Um, and I transcribed it. Lo and behold, un, unknown to us, Charles Hickson had also been regressed by Bud Hopkins twice in the 1980s. So I managed to get those two tapes nice. and transcribe them. And again, um, Charlie talked about incident, a couple of things when he was younger and a couple of other things that may be related afterwards as well. And bringing it right up today, near the end of uh, 2019, we were preparing Calvin's second book, which well, was Pascagoula, the story continues, when we had the opportunity of the lovely Kathy Marden visiting Pascagoula. And Kathy regressed um, Calvin again in, in the town. And I got that recording. This was, this was, shows you how times move on. That was just sent as an audio file. You didn't have to wait for any tape. Right. And I transcribed that as well. So all four hypnosis transcripts are in the second book 
And Calvin went over old ground, but it was much clearer. You could, you know, the recording quality was a lot better. And um, basically, we put the transcripts in there and just say to the reader, here they are. They're unedited. It's word for word. You make of it what you will. We're not saying it proves anything, but it's evidence, if you like, but you, you view it for yourself. Right. And, and it's all in there. That's no, I I didn't know his, his uh, re-abduction, I guess, is the, the only way yeah. I could really say it. Um, and, and then do you want to explain to the listener what the black stuff was on him? Like, oh, yeah. Well, you know, in 1993, Calvin's again lying on a bed. He can't move to begin with. There's the, the ugly guy in the corner. This female's got a hold of Calvin. She's sticking this thing down his throat. It's hurting, and he says, I've had enough of this. He, he, he's looking around, and he's looking, he's actually looking for a doorway. And he says, if I can get hold of this woman, he uses colourful language. B-A-T-C-H, yep. Yeah, she's going out the door with me. I don't care where we are, she's going out the door. And he manages to sort of come around, and then all these little balls of lightning are flashing around him, little sparks almost. But he gets, cutting a long story short, he gets hold of her and he beats the living daylights out of her. And the black goo is her blood. Oh, and wow. then she she makes a noise and the, the big ugly guy sort of springs to life again, gets hold of Calvin and it's game over, you know. Right. And he's back on the boat covered in this black goo. He wanted to kill her, basically. He said, I'm going to kill you. Right. I've had enough of this. Didn't he mention uh, that uh, once once he was subdued that she scratched his eyes like when he was paralyzed? That's right. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. she was so mad at him that she was just trying yeah. to scratch his eyelids or yeah. yeah. He'd had enough. I mean Calvin's you know, been a tough old boy. He was uh, at one point a uh, debt collector and um you know he got involved in in, in uh, some quite hairy situations. Uh, he was a bounty hunter as well as well for a while. Oh wow. Uh, he's a man's so, man yeah yeah well he, he 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 told me when he was a youngster he had a younger brother he said my brother was the brains i was the brawn if anybody picked on my brother at school and i found out they didn't pick on him again right you know it was as simple as that and but he's a you know he's he's he's, he's a terrific guy and uh he's just says even now i don't know what happened i'm just looking for answers right and and, and that's it that's uh, no, but that was one of the the the, the craziest stories um, for fishermen related abductions that I've heard. That in the Allagash uh, incident, I don't know if they were close. I, I think they both took place in the seventies. Yeah, well, I'll give you a, uh, an idea of Calvin's sense of humor. There's um there's a, an organization in the town of Pascagoula. They're called Main Street. They all work for free. They're all volunteers and they promote the town and they put on, you know, events and, and all this kind of stuff. And one of the events, Calvin was raffling off <laughs> a fishing trip with him on the river. <laughs> <laughs> so that was one of the prizes. Yeah. You go, you go Unique experience. Well, yeah. 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 And again, I'll give you an example. Calvin did a book signing in the town and he sat there with his wife and, this elderly guy comes up and said, thank you very much, Mr. Parker. Oh, by the way, I saw it that night as well. And he walked away. Uh, 
Luckily, somebody was taking photographs and there's a photograph of this gentleman buying the book from Calvin. So I, I, I put it on social media and a lady came forward and said, I, I know that gentleman. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll ask his permission if I can pass his phone number on, which she did. And it's a chap called Louis Lee, Mr. Louis Lee. And Mr. Lee was working in um, the shipyard that night and he was a crane operator. And I spoke to him and he said, Philip, it's the damnedest thing I ever seen. He says, my cab was about 10 or 12 feet off the ground. And he says, as soon as I got in it, I could see this thing out above the water. And he said, the only reason I stopped looking at it is because I had something on the end of my crane and my friends shouting, watch out, you know. Right. So I, I attended to my job and when I turned back, it had gone. And he said, I, you know, I, he said, I never hid the story, but who would I tell? I've told my friends and my family. And uh, and that was Mr. Lee. And he said, it's the damnedest thing I've ever seen, Philip. And I think one of the reasons he didn't talk too much yet about it is because he was what we call here moonlighting. He had a full-time job during the day, and then he did a bit of part-time work elsewhere on an evening that might not have been um, not illegal, but his, his, not on his, main the books. Employers, his main employers might not have been best pleased. Let's put it that way. Right, right. Okay, gotcha. So, um, and, and he's just one, another one. And, you know, again, thank you. Thanks. For, I, I give you another remarkable thing on. So that happened, happened October the 11th. On November the 6th, 1973. So we're talking approximately three weeks later. There's two little skiffs, two little fishing boats out in the same stretch of river, but a bit further out, going fishing. They witness something underneath the water. It is circular, it's about 30 feet in diameter, and it's illuminated. And they maneuver the boat up to it, they get an oar off the boat, and it goes bonk, plunk, whatever you want to call it. The lights went out. They played cat and mouse with this thing for about half an hour. They then went in person in their boat to the Coast Guard station and reported it to the Coast Guard. The Coast Guard sent a boat out. They too saw it, and they too hit it with something, and it went clunk. Yeah. Now, we got the po there's documents about this. We had the documents. But then, I think it was earlier this year, a colleague of mine says, contact this fella. I won't give any names. He said, I think he's got a photograph of all those witnesses. Oh, no way. And he did, and he sent me it. So you've got, I think there's eight or ten of them. They're all lined up in daylight now on the quayside, in colour, photograph taken. But on the back of it is their names and their age. So I thought, surely one of these may still be around. So I posted that on, on social media. Within a couple of hours, Jason, um, a couple of ladies had contacted and, and basically all of them except for one was dead. Oh, wow. And we found that one. We got his phone number and he was interviewed the very next day. And he, he said, I mean, you've never seen anything like it. He said the next day the Navy came out and he had to go and show the Navy where it happened. He said, it's just water, nothing to see. And it's just the river. Yeah. Uh, but the Navy sent somebody out to look at it. So we have him on, on, on the record as well. It's a very bizarre. And then we have another gentleman around about the same time, this time in daylight, working in the shipyard. He says, Philip, when you're on 
when you're working on the ship, you're really high up, you know, from the ground level. Right. And then there's the river. He said, we saw off the top of my head, he said, three of these things go under the water that way. And then X amount of time later, they came out back the other way. Broad daylight, he said, I saw it. My colleagues saw it. And we've interviewed him as well. So we have him on, on the record. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. There's been so many. One of the um, sort of sceptical arguments were where Charlie and Calvin were fishing. It's not an out-of-the-way place, Jason. It's easy enough to find, but it's right next to Highway 90. And there's a huge, great bridge goes across the river, and there's traffic running backwards and forwards. And someone said, well, surely somebody on the bridge would have come forward. Well, they did. We have a chap. Uh, he said, I'm, I'm driving across the bridge, my wife next to me. And he said, the, the, the operative word, I see this blue thing down below me. He said, I thought it was going to crash. It was that low. Oh, wow. He said, I watched it for about 30 seconds. And then he says, the next day, I went to visit my aunt, who lives down by the river. He said, before I'd even got to say hello, she said, you'll never guess what I saw uh, last night. Uh, uh, <laughs> you know, and she too, she sadly passed away since then, but said she too had seen it. So people on the bridge did indeed see it. Uh, and he, he was he was just but one of them. It's crazy because, you know, for so long, uh, I mean, under the, because I remember this story, I mean, it's, it's been around for a while now, but for so long, you know, it was just these two saying their stories and you didn't have anybody really else saying, oh yeah, I saw it too. And now they're, you're finding all these people uh, yeah. through these pictures that, or somebody just mentioned something really quickly. You're like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Uh, and you can actually add witnesses to this, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, event, which gives a lot more credibility to what Calvin and uh, Charlie went through. Um, yeah, well, it's like when, when we, when, when I got started in the 1980s, we tried to make us, ourselves our organization, our little UFO group, as visible as possible. Uh, and when people contacted us, Jason, one of the things we made it uh, a rule was ask them how they'd found out about us. Where did they get our phone number from or our right. address? Because we were putting stuff out all over. Then you go back to 1973, you, the, you, there's no, you can't call Ghostbusters. There's nobody in the telephone directory, even if you tried. Right. And um, so people, the, the people had really no option. They either kept it to themselves or they told the news media. And of course, Charlie and Calvin were all over the news media. Some of it wasn't too kind to them. Um, so that, that prevented uh, people from stepping forward. But today, of course, they're at an age now where they don't really care um, what the news media may or may not say. Right. They've seen Calvin's come out of, the, out of the closet, so to speak, tell his story in full. So they, a lot of them felt they were like kind of supporting this man whom they've never met. So it was a way of supporting, saying, well, you know, don't don't laugh at this man. Why not? Well, because I saw something that very same night, you know, in the same locale or nearby or close by. And, um, you know, we're grateful to each and every one of them. We really are. It's crazy, though, because even the story, is it that the ship is looking for someone? 
you know, because it's just, it's lingering on. Everybody sees it. It's going around. And all of a sudden sees uh, Calvin and Charlie and just goes, it takes them. Right. No. So it's almost like they're just scouting. Like, can we find somebody today? But the fact that you're mentioning that he's had this reoccurring theme throughout his life uh, seems to be almost like it's not really accidental. It's not like a, a one-off because he had another experience afterwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. could well be. I mean, that, that could well be the case. Um, Calvin just shrugs his shoulders out. He's, I don't know. All, all I can tell you is what I remember, and, right. and that's it. Right. And But we found all kinds of stuff, Jason. You know, these are things just off the top of my head. And uh, like I say, Calvin's been ill of late. He's, thankfully, he's back, you know, back with us. He's, he's, he's on the mend. Uh, we have just completed writing a, um, a five-part drama series. We work with a producer and a writer, mainly Calvin, because it's his story. Right. Um, and like I said, we're working with a, an artist and a writer on a, on a graphic novel. And, and there will be some more books coming out in one this year and one next year do you uh want to talk also about uh your new books you got a, a book that's um actually you, you keep posting several books uh from your uh flying sauce uh flying uh, disc press so is there a book that you want to talk about uh, that you want to promote today as well because we can do that um on this episode yeah i mean there's a lot we have, lo- I have lots of books um the new one out actually, uh, June the 1st, is from a, a, a gentleman in Malaysia, of all places, Ahmad Jamaluddin. Uh, unfortunately, Ahmad's spoken English. He's not that great, so he's, he's not up for interview, uh, I'm a, which, is, which is the way, the way to go. But he's, he's looked at the connections between UFO sightings and earthquakes. Oh, nice. And he has his own theory. He believes there is a, an unknown and undetected body within our solar system that is somehow linked to both the sightings of UFOs and somehow earthquakes. Uh, and he gives a lot of statistical analysis. And... Um, it's just something different. What, what I try and do at Flying Disc Press, Jason, is to not always publish the obvious stuff. And, and it's a fascinating little theory, all of his own. Uh, he's done his research. You know, it's all there. And um, But coming out, something completely different, coming out on July the 1st, is a book by Don Schmidt and Tom Carey well-known Roswell researchers and best-selling authors, they have a book that I'm publishing called Touched by Roswell. Huh. And what it is, this is a, 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 a popular book. It's not a research-orientated book. This is a book about famous people or politicians who have been linked to Roswell in, or have commented on Roswell in one, frame, one way or another. Um, there's even a photograph in it of Demi Moore at the UFO Research Centre and Museum in Roswell. <laughs> you know, so there's people in there who are well-known sportsmen and things like that in the states. I have no idea who they are. You play these strange games called baseball and and gridiron and football. You know, yeah. But there's also people like you know, there's politicians. 
Um, the the foreword has been written by uh, an actor called Roy Thinnes. Roy is the man from the series The Invaders. And that, I'll take you back. And, and he is a good friend of Don Schmidt. They've been friends for like, I think, 30 years or more. Oh, wow. So Roy writes the foreword for it. Uh, so there's all kinds of little gems in there, you know, TV producers, film producers. When they made the movie Roswell, um, which is based on, on one of uh, the, um, Don's books that he did with Kevin Randall, I didn't know, and I've watched the film several times, Don has a cameo in it. Oh, really? He's behind the bar. He's, he's, I don't know if he's a cocktail waiter. And he's got his, and so there's a couple of stills have been being directed about what to do and meeting the, the actors and things like that. So it's a very completely different book to anything I've published. It's very commercial. What I suggested to um, the authors, I said, you've obviously got a lot of um, photographs, letters, this kind of so why don't we put a, a section in the middle of the book that will show you all of this stuff? So they did. So they've got photographs with all these people, documents, letters from them, you know, posters. Uh, there's a guy from Star Trek in it, you know. There's the lady who was the main actress in the War of the Worlds. I forget her name. I actually met her in Roswell as well, and I can't remember her name. Um, so it's, it's, it's something completely different. That'll be out July the 1st, and um, hopefully, the, although the um, the main events that they have every every year in Roswell is not going ahead, they still are having an event at the UFO Museum, so I'm hoping we'll have copies of it on sale, uh, uh, you know, during those those few days when there's a, I don't know if you call it a conference or a present or whatever is happening at the UFO Museum in early July. And that's, you know, everything's online this year, too. I got a, uh, um, the Scientific Coalition for UOP Studies is, is hosting an online conference as well. I think that one is due, or the last day you can actually sign up, I think, is June 1st. Uh, but it's going to be like a two-day event. So everything's going more online, which... This is not online. This, this will be in person. Oh, this is in person. Know. Okay, good. Yeah, the museum's already open for, for, for visitors. Um, but like I said, they know, what they normally have, they normally have a, a small convention at the museum. And then a, a, another location in the town is a much bigger event because the museum is limited, you know, of how many, for, because of its size. Right. Then they have parades during the night. So it goes on for a whole week. You know, they have costume parties, pop groups, you know, barbecues. It's all loosely themed around Roswell. So this, the event in the museum is still going ahead. I don't know if there's restrictions or anything like that, but it, it is in person, and we're hoping to launch Touched by Roswell at that event. So, um, But it is, it's already ready to go. And, of course, what I have been doing, you talked about some of the, the books I've done. Um, we're now doing a little collectible series uh, where the books, you can buy any of the books, coming on slowly but surely in hardback. Whereas before there were only paperback and Kindle. Um, so we now have the opportunity. I, I mean, I love hard. I prefer hardbacks. Yeah, me too. Me too. And um, so for anyone that wants that, they'll be there. And we were having a series of our books. Not all of them uh, made as audio books as well. So we got some of those already done. I think we've got six done and with another five to go. 
uh, and they'll all be coming online slowly but surely uh, as the year progresses, simply because somebody asked, have you got this, is this available in an audio book, Philip? And I said, no. But I'm thought, well, you know, why not? It's, why not? It's the way to yeah. go these days. Yeah. Everybody's so listening to stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah, eventually most of the books all being well will be available as an audio book as a kindle as a softback and a hardback you will be able to take your pick um we may we've even think when i say we it's me <laughs> i always use the royal way <laughs> me I'm myself and i right yeah <laughs> yeah um might do one or two as um full color but they'll be expensive it's just the print cost there's nothing i can do about it um, but they'll just be for a collector's item. That that's all. Right. You uh, don't expect to sell thousands of them. If we sell one or two, we'll be quite happy. Um, and, and who knows what else? Like I say, we'll, we'll have the um, the graphic novel at some point this year, and um, hopefully, well, with Calvin and I, once he got back out of hospital and, and was okay, we've signed a contract to make a documentary series. This is with a UK production company. And literally, we started work on that this week. Oh, really? Any film. Yeah, I don't think there'll be any filming this year. That'll probably take place next year. But the producer said, right, we're looking at multimedia uh, material first. So what, what do you have? Well, I've, I had, for example, um, some old interviews on audio, Sheriff Diamond being interviewed back in 1970. So all, all that's gone. Charlie and Calvin made their own little documentary at some point, late 70s, early 80s, so we can use that. Um, I've sent the one hypnos hypnosis, that's from Kathy Marden. We're looking at getting permission of the to use the other hypnosis tapes or some clips from them anyway. Right. A ton of photographs, documents, newspaper cuttings, all that kind of stuff. That's all gone. So that... And, the what, what what's interesting, um, Jason, is that the local TV station in the area is called WLOX. They've covered it from the very beginning, so we're hoping to get some access to their archives right. and use some of the clips that they've used down the years. Um, you can find one or two of them on YouTube, but by no means all of them. Um, so so we're looking at the multimedia aspect of it first. Um, now, I told you the story about Mr. and Mrs. Blair. Yes, yeah. Mrs. Blair. Um, sadly, Mr. Blair passed away. But we have a little video clip of him telling us his story. Um, I need permission to use that, of course. But Mrs. Blair even volunteered to undergo regressive hypnosis. So that may happen at some point. Um, she's, you know, she's... She's not ready for it at the moment, but she, she said it might happen. So if it does, that will be recorded and probably filmed at the same time. So, and then, of course, we've got uh, archive material of Charlie, because he, he passed away in 2011. So we've got some video clips of him. Charlie even made a record, you know. Oh, really? A vinyl record. All he does is tell his story on it. There's no singing. And... Um, so we have the audio of that, and it's just him telling his story. Believe it or not, somewhere around the time, there was also a local preacher um, did a sermon, and it's on vinyl record. 
I haven't got the vinyl, but I, I managed to find a copy in a museum. And the museum, gratefully, uh, had an audio of it, and they sent us the audio file of it. So nice. <laughs> basically, the 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 the, uh, the pastor or whoever the hell it is is saying it's all demonic and all this. Stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So now, what what is also interesting is we start digging in other areas, and we found, for example, you know the, the, the rock band Fleetwood Mac? Yes, yeah. Well, back in 1976, I think it was, they recorded a song called Hypnotized. I guess who it's based on? Calvin. Charlie and Calvin. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. Are you allowed found- to... Use that song for your documentary. Well, I don't know. We we found an, a, an article about it as well in a in a in a in a magazine that told us the exact story. And then when when Calvin's first book came out, some mu- two uh, musicians in the states called um, Jerry McCoy and Johnny Cobb, they wrote a song, and they called it "Blackwater Blue Moon." Hmm. Because one gentleman said to us, he said, you know, when there's a black water and blue moon in Pascagoula, strange things happen. So that kind of stuck with them. And, and the song is there. It's, it's on YouTube for free. I think you can download it on, I don't know if it's iTunes or whatever. Uh, it's called Black Water, Blue Moon. It's very catchy. It really is. So I'll give you some idea. Of, and then I think it was last year. There was a, a, a Scandinavian lady from Norway who released, I think you'll call it a techno track. It's electronic music. It goes on for about six minutes. There's no, there's no audio, it's no singing, it's all. But then in it is Calvin Parker telling his story. Huh. He got Calvin's permission and he said, yeah, so that particular track went out across Scandinavia and Europe. And, um, of, of course, uh, the lady is quite popular in her field. And um, once things start to open up even more, it will be played in all the nightclubs and places like that. So <laughs> I've joked, I've, I've, I've joked yeah. with Calvin, you're a best-selling author, you're a musician, recording artist. What next? Yeah, in- yeah. influencer, uh yeah, amuse, I guess, for some people. Yeah. He just shakes his head. He can't he can't believe it, you know. And then of course, in 2019, in Pascagoula, um, they unveiled a historical marker at the site. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. And we didn't have any part in it. We the it was again organized by uh Main Street, the the charity there, and um so there's no taxpayers' money involved or anything like that. It was all donations, and it's there at the site. It's, it's dedicated to Charlie and Calvin. The only the only input we had was some artwork I provided, and uh, there was an official unveiling by the mayor, and even even Charlie's son Eddie Hickson uh, turned up, which was nice. Um, so that is right by as near as you can to the site and anybody can go and see it. it's there calvin has a copy of it um which they gave him on his uh his wall at home and that was that was really nice this calvin was near to tears when 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 he was interviewed about it and uh there were plans for other things but then covid has, has put everything on on hold so 
who knows what might happen in the future. I really like Charlie, um, you know, listening to him on the tape um, that was secretly being recorded there at the police station because it just shows like how sweet he was and <clears throat> how old was he? He was in his 40s, wasn't he, when this happened? He was 42, yeah. 42, okay. So here's the thing. I'm <clears throat> 40. He was only two years older than me. For some reason, he looks like he was approaching 57. Some of yeah. the people in their 40s back in the day made them look way older than they should have been. But his reaction or the way he was talking to Calvin, like, I know, kid, I know, like, just that almost like a mentoring, but also like very caring friend that was way older than, than Calvin at the time. I wouldn't say way older, but he was older than Calvin at the time. And just his, the way that he reacted to it, because he he felt like he was the older one. This yep. experience happened and he wasn't able to help Kelvin. And when, it, you know, are you okay, kid? Like just his reaction to it is authentic. And I would encourage anybody who hasn't listened to that tape. I mean, it's on YouTube uh, to take a listen to it and just listen to that conversation that they're both having. This is about a few hours after the incident. But yeah, well, Kelvin's first book was dedicated to Charlie, and he calls him a true hero. Yeah, because of course he 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 was in the thick of it during the Korean War. Uh, he was involved in several major, you know, confrontations. There was one occasion he said, "I didn't think we we're going to get out of it alive." And what is interesting is that Charlie used his experience during the war, the Korean War, when this crazy thing was happening to them. Right. Because he, he, he thought he was going to die. He thought these things, whatever they were, they were going to kill him. Then he goes back in time to when he was in Korea. He said, we were pinned down. And my, I'll say captain, but it was his commanding officer. He's saying, don't worry, son. Just keep your head down. And an opportunity will come for us to get out of here. And he said, of course, it did. And we, and we, got, we got out of there. And he used that experience as you know, on board this thing, said, don't, no, don't panic, don't panic. You know, I'll, I'll, we'll get the opportunity to get out of here somehow. Um, and, and, and of course, Calvin was only 19 at the time, it was, you know, young and green, just started in life. And uh, he, he'd got no kind of reference to, to, to help him with this. So, yeah, and so he, he called him a true hero because he was a, a veteran, you know, who fought in, in, in the U.S. military, and then this happened to them as well. Yeah. I mean, if I'm going to get taken, I want, you know, somebody older than me, you know, to calm me down afterwards. I'm just yeah. saying. that's uh, That would come I mean, in Cal Calvin's as honest as the day. I'll give yeah. you an example. He got persuaded to go on a television show, much to his reluctance, and... Some of the sound guys, this is live, were, were, were taking the mickey out of Calvin. So Calvin just got up and punched him. <laughs> yeah. And so yeah. I, I don't care if people don't believe me, yeah. but I'm not having that. Yeah, you, know? you don't talk like that in my presence. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, um, you know, he got the microphone and threw it and said, I'm out of here. And then he went to a television show, not to appear on it, but to link up with Charlie. And when he got there, there was a journalist involved, and the it, the show had been cancelled. Calvin says, "I didn't know what was going on." There's, there's Charlie, there's a journalist, and there's this fellow there with them, supposedly some kind of scientist. And the the journalist said, "Calm down, guys. 
we'll go for dinner all you know together so by the time we got over the road to go go get something to eat charlie and this scientist aren't, aren't speaking so calvin didn't know who this fellow was they sat there and the, the journalist is trying to play you know a role here and get the story out and he said and what it was that it, it wasn't a scientist it was the late philip class the debunker mm. and he'd refused to go on this tv show if Charlie appeared on it, because he called Charlie a liar. So if you call Charlie a liar, that almost means that Calvin is lying as well. Yeah. So Calvin stood up and let this gentleman know, if you call me a liar again, <laughs> this is what I'll do to you. And he said, I don't care if you don't believe us. I don't care if nobody believes us. Nobody calls us a liar. Yeah. He said, come on, Charlie, we're going. And he said, we flew we flew home that night hungry. We didn't get any dinner. <laughs> and that was Philip Class. <clears throat> so what I did when we, when Calvin and I were putting together his second book, we actually found, a, uh, through a colleague, uh, an unpublished article by Philip Class about the Pascagoula case. It's, about, it's only three pages long, I think. So we published it in full in the book. However... And then went to I went on to find Philip Class's whole file on on this case. It's at a university, and they allowed me to to have a copy. So we put the whole file on Calvin's website, so you can read the whole file. So we're not hiding anything. And basically, Class wasn't doing any investigation. He was just trying to dig some dirt on Charlie, right? And, and he couldn't he couldn't find any. So he's his fallback position, as, as ever was, if he couldn't find any you're a liar. explanation, yeah. you're, you must be lying. Yeah, And he just said it to the wrong one that day. Yeah. <laughs> well, eventually, that's that's what I mean. I, I've always thought that, you know, you could get away with calling somebody like that, you know, if somebody's um, uh, the critics, you know, from a distance, you could say, oh, you're full of shit. But that's a lot of different scenario to handle when you're in front of the person. And if yeah. the person is absolutely like, you know, if they're in the right, something did happen to them. Yeah, most likely there might be a fist thrown your way, especially if you're uh, being belligerent about it. And it's, it's, that's just crazy. That's how honest Calvin is. He is, he is an honest. He says, I don't mind if you don't believe me. Yeah. Just don't call me a liar. Yeah, which is fair enough. And then again, why would a person like that lie? Why would he put no. himself in that situation if he hates being called a liar? He wouldn't, right? It ruined his life. Yeah. Uh, Cal Calvin's aim, he just got engaged to his wife, Wynette. Nice. And Calvin was worried that um, her father wouldn't let them get married. That was one of the reasons for not wanting to tell the story. Right. When he went back home, he, 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 wouldn't, he refused to talk about it. Um, they did get married. They're still together now. Um, but he never really spoke about it. The way the story came about, uh, Jason, is Charlie Hickson, along with a chap called William Mendez, they wrote a book and published it in 1983. It's called UFO Contact at Pascagoula. And you get a, an occasional copy of it flying around on eBay or somewhere like that, and they cost a fortune. So I, I managed to track down the person who had the rights to it and asked for permission to republish it, which they did. And as I'm in the process of doing that, I thought, oh, I wonder if I can find Calvin and just get an interview with him. So it took me a few months, but I, I 
finally got a, an email from for him and he sent me his phone number and I rang him. And he was polite, but didn't say an awful lot. <laughs> uh, what I didn't know is not long before my phone call, he'd been to a, uh, a friend's funeral. Aww. And I think on the way out, they sign a book of condolence or something like that. And as he's he signs it and as he's coming out, there's sort of wink, wink, nudge, nudge. That's the UFO guy. And he thought I was very disrespectful. Yeah. So his wife went out and said, look, I'm sick of this. Why don't you just write your damn story? Tell everybody. And, and it's done with it. So just to placate his wife, he said, yeah, I'm going to, I'll write it up. And um, so when I'm talking to him, he just off the cuff said, oh, I'm, I'm thinking about writing a book of my own. So I said, oh, I might be able to help you with that. It, it wasn't really. He just trying to tell me that to, to put me off. And so I said, look, I'm just a one-man band. I'll send you a copy of the contract that I, I use all the time. If you're happy with it, let me know. So with his wife on one side and me on the other, he, he agreed, much to my surprise. So we went from just asking for a, an interview to eventually writing two books and unveiling all this other kind of stuff, all these witnesses, documents, tape recordings, a historical marker in the town. I mean, that all stemmed from that one conversation. Wow. And, um, you know, he's, 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 he wishes now he'd, he'd done it a bit earlier because it, it lifted this you know, this albatross off his back, you know. I bet. Yeah, I bet. To live and he said, I've, I've met some remarkable people, Philip, you know, and he said, it's amazing. When he took ill, he was broke. So people sent him, you know, donations and that kind of thing. He's, he said, I can't, I can't thank people enough. I said, well, there you go, Calvin. Because yeah, he didn't look upon himself as being anything special. Yeah. He's just Calvin Parker. That's, that's it. Um. But, you know, who, who knows what will happen next, Jason? I, I just think it's brilliant that he got around to it eventually. I haven't purchased his book yet, but it is it is on my to-get list for sure. Uh, for Flying Disc Press, what, what website can we go to, Philip, and, and find this on? Yeah, just flyingdiscpress.com. It's as simple as that. That's disc with a K. That's simple. I have a little blog. I don't write much on it, but, you know, our books are on there. Updates go on there if, if anything's happening. Um, for example, Calvin did a few conferences in 2018. Not had the opportunity to do that since then. So if it was all the other guys, I'll post them on there so you, you can see where our authors are going. Um, there is UFO Megacon taking place in Laughlin, uh, Nevada. Uh, in the early, I think it starts June the 6th. And um, two of our authors will be there. There's a gentleman by the name of James Trey Hudson. Um, I published a book that's that's available. It's called The Meadow Project. Uh, and what Trey and his colleagues are, they are all-round paranormal researchers, um, Jason. And they stumbled upon a location that they won't give away where it is. It's in the south. And they say it's just like the Skinwalker Ranch, but on a smaller, smaller scale. And when I say smaller scale, I mean the area that, that this happens within. Right. And um, so Trey's book was a bestseller on Amazon. He will be speaking about it for the first time at UFO Megacon. 
Um, we are in the process of planning that book to be a documentary series. And I'll give you one example from the book. Bear in mind, you know, Trey was in uh, military intelligence as a civilian. Uh, and he will tell you he never dealt with any kind of weird phenomena as part of his work. It was, you know, his paranormal work was always outside of that. And I said to him in an interview I did with him, I said, what was the, you know, there's been cryptids, there's been UFO sightings, missing time. Um, you even have his colleagues being filmed on infrared. So you can see them walking along and then guess what? They just disappear. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> uh, so I said to him, what was the scariest thing that ever happened to you? He says, well, we're all, we're all set up. You've got all this gear, all this equipment. Bear in mind, he said, nobody knows where this location is, apart from us, his small team. And out of the blue, he calls it a men in black, but it's not a man. It's a woman. He says, this really attractive woman, smartly dressed, but, you know, business-like, came from who knows where and said, if you follow me, I'll take you to a location where you'll see a lot more of this stuff. And he said, it really unnerved all of us and we didn't go with her, you know. Huh. And make of it what you will. Um, so... We're in partnership with a production company would hopefully make this into a documentary series. But he will be at UFO Megacon speaking about that. My colleague and co-author is a chap called by the name of Paul Stonehill. Paul lives in California, but he's originally from the Ukraine. Paul and I have done a lot of work on all things Russian. Um, so he'll be talking about some of the things from the Russian military uh, and uh, uh, what we call USOs, underwater UFOs, for want of a better phrase. Yeah. So he'll be there as well. We had another two colleagues um, trying to get there from the UK. They're called Philip and Ronald Kinsella. They're identical twin brothers. They were invited to speak, but because of the COVID restrictions, they can't get there and get back. The, you know, they'd have to go into quarantine right. and pay a thousand dollars for a thousand pounds for a hotel for a week and all this kind of stuff. So they, they were booked, but they've had to reluctantly pull out. They'll they'll be there next year, though. Right. We had them on the podcast actually recently. Yeah. Thanks to you. Yeah. You, you mentioned them to me on Facebook. And so I reached out to them and had them on a podcast recently. So yeah, but- their books are on Flying Dispress. Uh, Ronald's is called The Digital Demon. Phillips is you, uh, you the public deceived, and they are the first two books, for example, that we're releasing as hardbacks. So you'll be able to get that as a hardback, a paperback, a Kindle, or an audio book. They're both in audio book as well. Good. So they're all there. Is it uh, auto? Um, is it read by somebody with a creepy voice, or is it read by uh, somebody with who who actually wrote the books? Well, no, it's not Philip and Ronald that have, uh, have done the narration. These are professional narrators we've used. Different guy for, for both books. Uh, although, you know, Philip and Ronald look exactly the same. 
sound exactly the same. It's hard to tell them apart. Yes, it really is. I've met them both, you know, and I I have to say you should be really wearing name badges because there's no way... you know, I've said there might be three or four of you. you know. Just an, uh, an RRP on the shirt. That's all you really need, right? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, they, they checked the um, the narration first. And they were happy with it. And uh, so there you go. And, and like I said, some of the other books will be coming online as audio books as well. No, I'm I'm very grateful for your time uh, on this podcast, Mr. Mantle. Like I said, um, I've been watching you on Facebook now for a while and just seeing all the books that you're releasing and, and the good that you're doing um, because it gets people a, a way to tell their stories, express themselves um, in a way that I don't think they would be able to do on their own or even to get a publisher or anybody to look at their their work outside of the community. So the fact that you're doing this and, and publishing these books like crazy. Yeah, I mean, great. I mean, my first book I co-authored with a friend of mine called Carl Nagatis. And that was in, back in 1994. I still have the file in my um, in my filing cabinet of all the rejection letters we got from Oh, wow, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so you don't need that anymore, of course. Yeah. Um, which is, is the beauty of the technology we have. Yeah, and the times have changed. I mean, even this podcast, I mean, this wouldn't have been feasible even no. 10 years ago, you know, um, for me anyways. But now this, uh, you know, the computer age, the way that it's at, people can have their own programs or, or, or do their own work. Like publishing has become ever, you know, easier for some people. Uh, my wife wants to write a, a fiction book and publish it on Amazon. Like it's so simple. But yeah. it's not that simple to get the word out. You still need a publisher, um, you know, for books like this. Uh, and I think uh, Flying Disc Press is doing a really, really what good we, job. What we've also done, Jason, we've set up Flying Disc Press in France. So I have a, a colleague by the name of Jean Libero. Jean is a professional translator. Um, so we have some of our books, not all of them, but some of them out in French. And then we have Dario Hernandez, Fernandez in Argentina, who has published some of our books in Spanish. Oh, wow. So we've got French and Spanish. We've also got working relationships with other publishers uh, or oh, we did have up until COVID stuck its nose in and spoiled everything, of course. Yeah. <laughs> we had one of our books published in Russian, and they have another couple in, you know, in the wings waiting. Uh, similarly, with a, another company in Germany, they, they, they're looking to publish all of our books in German. But uh, it's just that COVID has, has halted those, those other aspects. So, you know, we got Calvin's first book published in Japanese, um, you know, some of our books are also in Italian. Uh, I think our first one's also in Romanian. I think we've got it in Lithuanian or some 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 other language from that that neck of the woods. You know, <laughs> so we, we're trying to expand, and we, we probably would have expanded more were it not for the pandemic. Right. But uh, in the meantime, we keep we keep plugging away best we can. Well, I thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, Philip. It's uh, been my honor to have you on. My pleasure.